Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. This episode of the Artelligence Podcast is an extended conversation with realist painter Dermid Kelly. The conversation took place at Stellan Home Gallery in New York, but Kelly is represented by Offer Waterman in London, and the conversation is between Art in America's editor, Will Smith, and Kelly. My name is uh, William Smith, and I'm the editor of Art in America magazine, and I'm really pleased to have this opportunity to speak with Dermot Kelly about his uh, wonderful exhibition here in New York. We got to meet the other night. Uh, we've been exchanging some emails, and I, it's really nice for me to learn about you. Um, I haven't seen much of your work in person because I think this is one of your... The first show uh, in New York. So American audiences really are getting some of their first real glimpses uh, of your work here uh, in the United States. And I thought, um, as a way of maybe getting into this, we would then talk about perhaps an American context for your work. A lot of people have written and discussed um, British and continental influences on your art. But I thought maybe if you've been to the Met a few blocks away and uh, seen some of the stuff that we have here, art in America, as it were. If there's any, any kind of American grounding for, for your approach to painting. When I first um, started painting in the way that I do now, I think Sargent was a huge influence on me. And I think he often is uh, to people of a particular, um, well, most, most students, as soon as you start engaging with painting from life, I think Sardin is such an enormous technical uh, master that it's hard not to be very impressed by his work. Um, and so I really try to learn from his way of blocking tones and from the, the simplicity with which he managed to get um, a sense of illusion. Um, but I realized that I probably wasn't fast enough to, to work like Sargent. And also it felt a little bit um, too slick maybe for me. And I, I, I did realize that it, it wasn't gonna work out in the long term, but he was one of the first American painters that I was most interested in. But that was before I saw Thomas Aikens. And I think I responded much more, I'm saying Aikens, because I think that's the way that Americans say it. I spent about 10 years just saying Eakins, because <laughs> that's how you say it in Britain. Yeah, um, we'll say it anyway, I think. Eakins, hard E, that sounds, yeah. I'm going with Aikens, because yeah. that's, I'm trying to be sophisticated, okay? Um, and I, I really responded to the, the darkness in his paintings. And also just, I hadn't seen anything quite like them before. Um, and I think the, the realism of those paintings, the fact that they were far less um, fluffy, for want of a better word, I think there's a flamboyance to Sargent's work, um, that it, it's very colorful. And ironically, now I'm painting silk and velvet. I thought at the time there was too much silk and velvet in Sargent. It was far, more, far too much about a very sort of privileged lifestyle of the society portrait. And I really responded to Aiken's earthiness, I suppose, and the, 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 they were austere and somber, and I really admired the um, originality of them. And I think it was part of that particular movement in America for an independent way of seeing things. And there'd be a parallel with American literature and somebody like Theodore Dreiser. But I really 
responded to that. Um, and so I think Aikens would be somebody that I would point to more immediately now as somebody that whose work I like, because some of the paintings that I've seen are extraordinary, and I really don't know how he did them, because they're just so dark, these interiors which are fantastically gloomy, and I love them, but they are just so bleak and depressing. But, um, you know, there's nothing like them in European painting, really, that I could point to at that period, um, and I think they're wonderful. You also mentioned Spanish influence in their work as a sort of, well, sort of meta influence on you. And does that relate to the darkness that you're yeah, also drawn to? So. It was only recently that I saw a book, I think it was a show here, about the Spanish influence on French painting or painting in France. In Parisian painting. Manet Velasquez, yes. And I had no idea. I mean, in a way, I think unconsciously it registers. But I, having this picture side by side and being able to see the comparisons, that it almost made me question how much of impression, Impressionism was about painting modernity and how much it was an excuse to just paint like Spanish paintings because so much of it seemed to embrace the modernity in the modern world um, through this um, framework of uh, the Spanish examples. So the black and white and the, uh, the way that the paintings would be framed, I was really interested in that. And also there was a book, um, or rather a show at the Royal Academy in London called uh, Americans in Paris. Um, and it was mainly painters from that period. And it was very interesting to see how those American painters responded to influences. Um, all of this was coming together, whether it was um, the interest in Japanese prints or Spanish painting. But it, it is very interesting to see. But I think it is the, again, the gloominess and um, possibly the, the ambition of those sorts of paintings that I did like. You mentioned that Sargent was a particular influence when you started painting as you do now. When did you start painting as you do now, and, and how do you define as you do now? Um, I think it all dates back to the, the day that I decided I needed to build a box. The, I call it a light chamber, because it sounds better than a box. But uh, it is like this small shed that I built in the studio, and it has a, a window that hangs down. And I'd read about Dutch painters. Um, and Joseph Wright of Derby, I don't know if you know his work, but he was a candlelight painter. And th there are some paintings in the Tate of his. It's a particular way of being in the studio, having your easel and your canvas very well lit, so you're, you're not hurting your eyes by struggling to see in the dark, but nonetheless you're able to paint very dark interiors without actually being in one yourself. And so once I was able to put uh, my first sitter for this sort of painting, Ian, inside that environment, then suddenly everything took off, and everything you put inside that environment looks amazing and just starts looking like a painting already. So it's very hard to resist um, cutting the light down more and more. And I think that would be the, the point at which I'd say I, I sort of found something that I felt I could actually show to people. Because before that I was flailing around and I wasn't sure whether I wanted to do sculpture. Um, but I had this nagging idea at the back of my head about a kind of painting in, involving people. But I didn't really have um, a real framework or a, 
some ground rules that would make it work. Hmm. That's a really interesting phrase, um, a kind of painting involving people. Yeah. Um, you've said in another interview that um, the sitter of your painting isn't necessarily the subject of the work, that actually the subject of a painting is the very act of painting itself and the overall composition. Um, could you talk about what you mean there? I can, but probably not very well. <laughs> it, it may not, there may not be a lot of clarity involved, but I can try. It's difficult to articulate it because I, I, it, I think it works best in paint. Often these things are very difficult to actually describe. You can just show this one works, this one doesn't. Um, and when you say why, or, it, or try to say why, um, it, that often doesn't work as well. But so what do you think of art critics then? <laughs> Let's just <laughs> cut to the chase. <laughs> Obviously, people who are gifted with language far more than I would be. Uh, and I, I think there's a question of um, perspective as well, because it's, it's very difficult. I think artists are inevitably horribly narcissistic. And um, I think John Berger said that artists aren't really interested in art. They're just interested in their own next project. And so I think we're always very insular in a way. And I think art critics are able to see people in the round um, and compare them with all sorts of other things that individuals um, just don't have that, that breadth of knowledge. So that's where you come in. But I'd say, at the time, the reason that I liked um, that particular combination of elements where I had uh, a single sitter um, it, it lit in a way that suggested that it wasn't uh, lit and posed in a way that suggested that this wasn't a traditional portrait but something else. Um, but I wanted to use the framework or the, the genre of portraiture um, loosely because it felt like the only thing that exists or existed, because we were still in the 20th century when I was a student, that existed in the 20th century that was not entirely artificial. It was something that was still done. People still made portraits. It was a convention that seems quite anachronistic, but it's still accepted. There's lots of paintings of people around. People still commission portraits. So it was a way, if you wanted to deal with the figure, um, it wasn't play acting or contrived or like 18th century battle reenactments or something like that. It wasn't totally bizarre, um, but I could sneak in through that genre all the other things that I might be interested in, um, which would be a much more dark narrative, let's say, but one that didn't necessarily look like a narrative. It just, hopefully, when most people see the paintings, they just see a, what, what looks like a portrait, effectively, but a kind of odd portrait where it might be a bit gloomy or whatever, but it, it hopefully draws you in. But initially, that's the genre that it fits into and you know where you are, it's a portrait. And I think that's why I chose painting people in that way um, as a sort of starting point. I want to get back to the gloominess there and also how many of your sitters are posed, but since you brought up the question of, of genre, I wonder, um, and we're in a room of still life, so I wonder if you're approaching still life in the same way. Um, what is this convention for you? What does it allow for? How are you pushing it um, in new directions? That's a tough one. <laughs> I don't know that I am pushing it in new directions, actually. The thing is that the reason I started doing still lifes in the first place was just purely practical. I 
didn't have enough people to sit for me. And so when I didn't have somebody to come and sit, I wanted to be doing something because uh, obviously I only work when the light is right. Mm -hmm. So that means a lot of days I can't work very much. I and say the same thing. <laughs> I, it doesn't work so well for sunny, me. Yeah. It's nice day. I'm sorry, I'm out of I know, um, I know. Uh, I... It would get so frustrated that I had very good lights, nothing to paint, and thinking, oh, I'm wasting the day. I could create something fantastic. And uh, um, so I started painting still lifes sort of reluctantly because it was something that you did at, at school really, really grudgingly. It was so lame at school when you were given uh, usually a, a potted um, plant or some sort of fern or a pair of old boots or something really dreary and un uninspiring. Um, and so I never wanted to go anywhere near that. But having seen um, Dutch still lifes and in particular Spanish still lifes, Zerberan and people like that, um, I actually thought, well, maybe I could do something like that. Um, and that would A, make the most of this, and I think even then I was actually starting to think that was there were clear um, overlaps between painting the figure and painting an inanimate object because of the interesting colour and all the other things of lighting. And I think as soon as I started putting two two objects together, I thought actually there's a relationship between these two, which is far more potent than I'd realised. And composing just two apples. You can have happy apples or angry apples, apples that have just had an argument. There's this sort of um, dynamic between objects, which is, very, again, very hard to express, but you feel it. So I'm surprised that we sold the, these oranges as quickly as I did, because I'm just convinced that they look like they're really depressed. <laughs> they really, really need some Prozac or something, yeah. because it's just they're having a really bad day. But I, once I found that, then I realized that the scope of still life was far more... Um, um, playful in a way. There was a lot more to do, uh, and the experiment, um, I, I really enjoyed it. So I actually got more and more into it. And I, I think I particularly liked at the time using things that were, ironically, really, really dreary and didn't look like the subjects of still life. So, whereas um, so many uh, still lives tended to be of quite beautiful objects, silverware or glassware and things that are expensive and luxurious. I quite like just using cabbages and turnips and very, very ordinary things, but that were very, very colourful and seeing where that took me. Um, so that was uh, why I ended up doing that kind of still life. If you're interested in the psychology of fruit, let's say, are you interested really in the, in, in the psychology of people, of the sitters that pose for your portraits? Or are they involved in a composition of formal approach that they, it, yeah, they are. It's, it's um, I don't know, it's interesting having painted people when it has been a, a, a traditional commission, a portrait commission of somebody that I don't know very well or know at all. And actually that idea of penetrating their psychology and observing their character and trying to depict that in some way, when that's really come into play. Um, whereas before, when I've been painting friends, it very much has been a question of me saying, lie down and look sad. Just, we're going to find a way of making you look kind of on the border of despair, but not quite there yet, just looking generally melancholy. And there are degrees of despair that we work with. And um, again, it's all about um, gesture and vocabulary. The um, 
the language of gesture, if you like, um, that certain poses can convey gloom when there's nothing gloomy about the person at all, and actually nothing gloomy about the pose, mm -hmm. except that we have come to be conditioned to see it as being gloomy. So you're involving all sorts of traditions of um, the way that people use the body and the figure and references to other images, and it, it, I find it really absorbing. And um, that's what's going on, really, as opposed to me painting whoever's sitting for me, because we'll just be chatting about what we saw on TV or which celebrities we hate and that kind of thing. So it's, it's not really um, a question of analyzing somebody's psychology and allowing that to come forward in the, in the picture. Well, what I like is the, almost the, it, it's almost a paradox that um, you, you're reading these paintings as being ones of sadness, and yet, or, or there's a narrative, there's an implication of narrative always in these paintings, and yet there is none. It's just somebody sitting for a painting. It's as simple as that. And it, it is as composed and as unremarkable as the positions of the asparagus or anything else. They're just there, you paint them, and that's all that's going on. But because people bring their own experience of art and art history to these paintings, that they see sadness and we see something about that particular effect of light, which is dramatic and there's pathos and, um, and melancholy quite often. And yet all of these things are um, in the air, really. They're not actually in the studio. Um, and that's about as far as I can penetrate it, really. Many of your figures also appear to be asleep. Um... Yeah, I'm just not that much fun to be around. <laughs> <laughs> you just bored them. But, but I, I, wonder, I wonder where that comes from, because sleep is not necessarily a melancholy state. Um, it is after a few sittings with yeah. me. <laughs> but no, they, um, I, th I think it's, it's often, I think in Freud's paintings you would see it as well, because if you're sitting for a painting for hours at a time, it tends to be the... the sort of coziest position that you can be in. So there's always a balance between the most exciting uh, poses that are, in terms of composition, the most dynamic uh, or expressive, and what's actually comfortable for the sitter. So you, I have to arrive at a compromise between the two. And I, I can't work for very long before, if somebody's in one of these more uncomfortable po poses, before I start to feel a bit guilty. And I get anxious, and then even though they're, they're probably all right to carry on, you know, holding some ridiculous pose, I feel too guilty to make them do it. So I tend to opt for something that's a bit more passive. And it's something of a regret because I know that if I was a complete bastard, I'd just, I'd, I'd be like Freud, or I'd be you and Uglo. Because <laughs> I know that Uglo's sitters had an incredibly tough time, which was why he would get dancers to pose for him, because the, the rigor that you needed, the discipline to hold some of those poses was such that a normal person who wasn't like a yoga instructor wouldn't be able to do it. But I don't have that kind of ruthlessness. I'd rather we just, you know, had a break and had tea and biscuits every so often. And it was all just a, a, an easier working environment. So that's why uh, the, the poses tend to be a bit more um, sleepy. <laughs> you paint from life, obviously, um, but I want to talk about the role that photography does play in your process. Um, you, in your studio, for example, from the images I've seen, you have arrays of images. Um, so how does photography come in? 
Um, I steal other people's ideas. I just, well, it's why I'm very interested in photography and fashion photography, partly because my mind was warped by my mum buying copies of Vogue when I was younger, and I just can't get this stuff out of my head now that I'm just obsessed with shallow magazines, um, and they have nice clothes in. And But there is a lot to be done. There are a huge... Um, inspiration sometimes in the way that those images of fashion models wearing clothes, it's similar in that they're not portraits. They're, the, the figure is not the subject of the, the image. That they're or not incidental, but they're not the key element. It's the clothes. And there are, there are so inventive fashion photography in using the figure and the body. And there's just this plethora of inventive ways of using the body in relation to clothes and an environment that is actually far more interesting than a lot of other ways of looking at the figure. So it's, the genre frameworks are very much alive yeah, in fashion photography. Yeah. So there's um, a huge um, amount to be drawn from it. Um, so that's why I tend to look at that kind of photography um, because there's just there's so many ideas in it. And the same is true of contemporary dance. Um, there's a contemporary uh, choreographer, Russell Malifant, who um, I'm very keen on. And it's, again, a way of using the figure in relation to other figures quite often, but in relation to light and staging, that uh, I find that quite inspiring. So that's another interest, but I can't get the dancers on the wall. It's just handy to have that wall of images. So I I lose, I sometimes lose track of what I had planned to work on, and I'll put something in a drawer and forget about it. It's good to have it on the wall so that every so often I'll look and go, oh yeah, I keep meaning to do that in six months. And it's it's a better sort of um, diary in a way than just keeping a stack of ideas in a notebook, say. You mentioned um, fabric and clothing, and I think one thing that most people would notice about, especially some of your portraits, is the attention to like velvet, for instance, or silk in some cases. Could you talk about those material effects and how they relate to the material properties of the paint and the canvas that you're working with? Ooh. <laughs> Not to go down a rabbit hole here. OK, well, I'll just stick to what I know. OK. I, was thinking, mm. um, I started getting more and more interested in the, the clothes that people were wearing. Um, initially, because they have to wear clothes. So it's you can't avoid the issue. I know other people would paint people nude, but I'm just too English and embarrassed to do that. So <laughs> that's not happening. Um, and also, I think it's, it's it's too objectifying. I actually quite, I think clothes are just more important for all sorts of reasons. They're far more expressive of history and place and they're also very good vehicles for color and so many other things. So I, I find too many nudes just, okay, so they're pink. There's a lot of them, right, that's it. Here's another pink or you know beige. It's just, um, I, I find the way that people's anatomy can relate to the clothes they're wearing, it's more engaging for me. But that drew me more and more into being more selective about the fabrics that people would wear and the clothes they would wear and the way that clothes do tell stories. So I've never painted somebody wearing denim, for instance, or wearing trainers, it, looking for something that expresses a certain timelessness. So I, I don't choose anything that's too, um, too much like costume. 
but there is an element of the dressing up box. But I, I think, in a way, I wanted more and more to... I was just envious of Van Dyck and Vermeer and all the other great painters because they just had really nice stuff to paint. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And I think if you look at uh, Angra paintings, I always pronounce that wrong, Angra, um, even just the shape of the... Um, Oh, the crinolines that people used to wear. It's just from a compositional point of view. You immediately get this lovely pyramid. Um, and women's clothes have changed so much. Um, I think it was just greater, it was better for painters uh, when they did wear giant big skirts and with huge amounts of fabric that you could get really excited about. So I think that sense of loss just drew me to finding various pretexts for throwing in bits of fabric and cloth. And uh, for all sorts of reasons, I would just, yeah, I just felt that I needed to find some way, some excuse to, to whack in some, some really nice colors and fabrics because it's just, I think maybe because the poses are often quite gloomy, I just got a bit tired of painting gray and black and it was all looking a bit too, um, to monochrome, and so by actually injecting a lot more colour into the paintings, um, it, it kept me excited. And it's it's a huge challenge because I, I've had to really struggle for months at a time to paint some some of these fabrics, and to actually gain that mastery um, without being able as. It, the, the studio system used to allow painters to just say, right, Kevin, go and paint the, paint the walls or go and paint the skirt. They'd have an assistant that would actually go and do it for them or paint the background. And um, I have to do it all myself. And um, sometimes I'm just not very good at it and have to just keep doing it ag again and again until I get it right. But as to how it relates to the linen ground of the canvas, which I think is what you were saying. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you've given a very full answer to this. Yeah. Um, well, I think what I like in particular, and I've, I think maybe with things like the fabric in Carl's painting over there, with the, um, it's, it's a Liberty print, and I think it's one of the things that I find interesting about using fabric and pattern is that there's a specific historical reference there, because it's a British late 19th century fabric, which people will recognize. So it has history and place in it inherently. So it's not just some color and sort of anonymous. It actually carries a weight to it. And that's why it's more interesting than painting a nude, because you actually have, it's, it's saying something. Um, likewise, the, the green velvet Chesterfield that he's lying on, it again, makes a reference to a specific era. Um, and it's, it's my family sofa. We've had it since about 1973, something like that. And so for me, there's a, uh, an emotional weight there as well, that it's, it's not just historical in the sense of being a very old design. It's actually part of my family's history. And so I, I, it's interesting if you paint people in their own environments for the same reason, that the things that they live amongst are very, very important to them. So it's a way of drawing in um, their character through the things that they've put around them. But I, what I liked about that Liberty fabric is that it's, um, you're painting something as a, as a pattern that's two-dimensional. Sometimes it may represent three dimensions, but you're representing it in two dimensions on, sorry, in three dimensions on, two di on a two-dimensional surface. So there's all that interplay going on, and I like that. Um, I think in, in the last... The last show to this one, or maybe two shows before that, I was painting a woodland wallpaper. And I liked the idea of painting something that was entirely flat, that 
depicted something that was three-dimensional and a forest, but then I was depicting it as best I could to look three-dimensional, but on a two-dimensional surface. And it sort of does my head thinking about it, but um, that's what the fun was. This is why painting is still interesting after yeah. all these years, right? Well, at least for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it sounds like you approach painting as a costume designer, as a production designer. There's something almost theatrical about this. Not almost theatrical. Very, thea Very okay. theatrical, okay. Yeah. Um, so I was intrigued um, when you mentioned that film is a big influence on your work. Uh, and you mentioned a few cinematographers in particular, not directors, but cinematographers um, yeah. who um, are touchstones for you. I was a little bit surprised maybe by the names you threw out. One was Bruce Surtees, who um, was a maybe most famous for being a cinematographer on a lot of Clint Eastwood West Westerns and um, uh, uh, yeah, and also um, the cinematographer on Apocalypse Now, um, which had like a lot of um, yeah, but he did um, Agatha, Agatha okay. with Dustin Hoffman. That was much more sort of Downton Abbey, but uh, he also did. But didn't he do The Conformist? Yes. Yeah, which is more sort of 1930s. I'm on safer ground there in terms of the clothing. But I think it's just um, everything looks fabulous. Um, so whether, you know, it's Martin Sheen going down the river, yeah. which, I mean, okay, it's, it, there are impressive bits in that. But maybe I get less excited um, by that than the more the period dramas. But certainly the way that everything in there just looks so interesting. Things come alive for him as a director of photography. And I think that there is this um, painterly quality. Um, I mean, you can either say that cinematographers bring painting into their work or painting is cinematographic. Um, somehow it evokes cinema. It's, it's one way or the other, but um, you're dealing with the same issue of observing light and being, you know, just transfixed by these visual phenomena and wanting to either describe it or use it to propel narrative. So I think there is, there's a common ground there between those two things. And I think with Clint Eastwood films, basically they're just ace because they're Clint Eastwood. But I think it's also that some, sometimes the, uh, they're so interesting because they can be incredibly dark. Some of those scenes in um, the outlaw Josie Wales is the yes. one I know best to my shame. But um, some extraordinary nighttime scenes where you, you would have thought it was too dark to film. But it, it's very like those candlelight paintings that George de la Tour would have done. Um, and they're enormously expressive. And they don't really actually need to have any narrative going on. You, you can often just watch the film with the sound on, or I can anyway, um, and just look at how beautiful the images are. So, um, yeah, that's why I like Clint Eastwood films. Not all of them. Right. <laughs> just the ones with cowboys in them. Yeah, story. yeah. Um, maybe just to loop back to where we started, um, I know you've spent a lot of time going through contemporary galleries as well here in New York, and I, I wonder if there's anything um, that's caught your eye recently and how you understand your work in the context of contemporary art uh, in general. All I've seen, because um, when I was going through Chelsea, uh, the big galleries on Friday, I was saying earlier on that it was mainly just to stay warm um, and choosing which galleries to go in based on the quality of the heating rather than the quality of the art um, and if the bookshop was nice. But we did, um, I, I liked Jennifer Bartlett. They had a show in um, one of the galleries of work that I'd seen before at the Saatchi Gallery 
back in the 90s. And it was um, a little house um, with a painting behind. And there was something about her work that I responded to. But it's, it's few and far between with contemporary art because um, certainly when I was at college in the 90s, which is a long time ago now, and some of my friends were born in the 90s, so it just makes it feel horribly old. My car dates back to the 90s. But um, there was a, almost an embarrassment about being a painter, about painting itself. And people were trying to find ways, I thought perversely, of wanting to produce a rectangle that somebody could put on the wall, but it wasn't really a painting. They could sell it as a painting and they could show it in the gallery, but having to actually use paints and engage with the tradition of painting was something that they were trying to negotiate and navigate around rather than going hitting it full on. And so I think for a long time, I didn't like that. But I do like um, Luke Toyman's because I started getting interested in his work around that time. And particularly things like the fact that he used old canvases and there was something patinated about his work, that they, they were slightly cracked and looked like they might have been older than they really were. And that was that quality of being out of time slightly. Again, his paintings, they, they're Im immediately contemporary, but there's something quite old-fashioned about them as well. Um, so I, I think it's just unfortunate for me that so many people have followed the example of of his work and there's almost too much of what I would call good bad painting of people who are using the figure and painting very much more self-indulgent sort of figurative paintings than I could ever get away with. I, I never really try to tell any kind of story in my painting or have that narrative. It's all implied. But I think there's a lot of very bad painting that's been inspired by painters like Luke Toymans and it, it gets to be overwhelming. There's so much of it. So that's just me being very, very grumpy. Emotionally, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, we have time for grumpiness. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting how you talk about your time in relation to your paintings as being out of time in a certain sense, but um, also very present in the moment. And for me, the passages of, of unfinished really suggest uh, an interesting kind of temporality. You don't know if the painting is paused to a certain extent, if it's falling apart in a certain way, or... Um, or, you know, how you, how you want to approach that idea of, of completion. Um, so I wonder if you could speak about the way unfinished exists uh, on your canvases. Well, initially it started out as sheer laziness. It's just really nice to say, hey, that works, I'll stop there. Um, and it's, it's really um, came from that, and partly a fear of actually cocking up what, what I've done. Um, that to reach a certain point and then think, right, that, that seems to work. I'll just step away before I wreck it. Um, and I think that still holds true now. That's not an instinct that has gone away. Um, but there is a balance that I strike uh, between that instinct and what actually needs to be painted in order to allow the, the viewer to read the image correctly because I have a much better idea of what's going on in front of me as regards the motif than other people might. Um, well, anybody who isn't me, because they've not been looking at what I, they haven't seen what I've been looking at. But I always like Degas, the unfinished paintings. And there are little sketches that um, somebody like, I think there's a, 
it's a Van Dyke study of a child's head and there the one study and another one next to it and then just linen and it, there's just an extraordinary magic to those things and I think uh, I, I like to think of it as a focusing on, on the, the sort of magic of just the moments of, of looking that the more you paint the more it becomes like a picture as opposed to a painting and what you lose is the sense of that moment of perception and of the clarity that you have when you focus on, your eye only ever really focuses on one thing and your brain fills in the gaps around here. So I'm not really seeing anything other than a tiny point of view and my brain's just making up the other stuff. And it, there is something of that in the way that I like to just create something that looks like it's physical and convincingly three-dimensional, but then not bother with anything beyond that because it, it feels ephemeral. Um, and I, it does start to feel just like colouring and for the sake of it. You're just painting to the end of the canvas because that's what people always do. But it doesn't really achieve anything and it's, it doesn't contribute anything to the to the painting. And I think that I also like the the fragmented quality of that, that you have a fragment of an image and it becomes about memory and ghosts i suppose but yeah. this the sort of idea of a, you know, a ruin or um, a fragment of something lost and there's all of those things that that come into just leaving the paintings unfinished it's a beautiful description well thank you this was such an illuminating conversation uh, a round of applause for you. Thank you. That was great. That was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the Intelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 